And so there's so many people out there. And if we don't have that community and we don't have that, you know, somewhat of a stability somewhere, uh, I think it could be a great recipe for disaster. Welcome to the Raising Confident Teens podcast, where we talk about life and leadership with teens and their parents. I'm Hudson. And I'm Rachel. And on today's show, we're going to be talking with Brian Smith. Brian is a speaker, storyteller, and revenue leader in the tech space. He experienced a challenging childhood and was put in the foster care system as a teenager. He struggled with changes and uncertainty before aging out and having to navigate the real world on his own. He turned his pain into a passion for being a voice to those often unheard and for sharing his story to help others make sense of the world around them welcome to the podcast brian hey i appreciate both of you having me i'm excited to do this yeah we've been trying to do this for years haven't we i know it's been a <laughs> while but i'm glad we finally nailed out the time to get together and do it yeah you know I, I was thinking about this you know everything happens for a reason and thinking back to all the other times when we tried to connect i think now is actually the time we were supposed to do it because of all that you have going on can you tell us about your earliest memories? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, whenever I reflect on like just my earliest memories and growing up, um, it's, it's kind of a interesting thing to talk about because at different points of your life, when you reflect or you have a sense of or a time of introspection, um, either let lean on the positive or on the negative, and uh, you know writing this book the last year and a half, you know, it's, I've been at a time in my life where I've really leaned on the positives. And so I get to look back at those challenges and realize how it was such a positive. So um, thinking about early on in my life, you know, I grew up in the big city of Philadelphia. So I'm a city kid at heart, uh, but grew up in the panhandle of Florida. So um, city kid at heart, but definitely have the country um, aspects of life of being out one with nature I love space I love trees mountains I love fishing love the water so when I think about my childhood I think about that combination of having that early on city life where you can almost have access to anything at every block and then growing up spending you know the later the latter part of those years and here in the panhandle of Florida, just doing all things outside and recreational. So um, why did y'all move from Philly to Florida? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, ultimately, my dad realized at the time the city of Philadelphia was pretty dangerous. Um, I think my dad's younger years growing up, he had some things that probably was hanging around him that he wanted to get rid of and also create a better opportunity in life for his kids. Um, I didn't understand it, and I actually, I think growing up, I was pretty irritated that my parents had moved us away from what we knew in our family, um, only to later reflect and realize it was a pretty selfless thing to do, uh, move away from what he knew and the family he had in order to give his, his children a better better life, better experience, and you know, hopefully a good opportunity 
to grow into a young adult. So that's the main reason why we moved. Do you ever go back there? Yeah, I go back there from time to time. Not often as I'd like, right? Life gets busy. Uh, more recently, I went back for my uh, maternal grandmother's funeral. And so I got to see some family. Uh, it's always tough when you see people in those circumstances. But yeah, I go back from time to time. It's, it's a lovely city. It's it's crazy to see the gentrification going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, I, I think about Philly all the time. Like I, I'm very much attached to that place. Right. Do you ever think like, what would have what would have uh, happened to me if I'd have stayed here? I do. I do. It's, it, it's interesting. So I think the second book will probably reflect on a lot of that. Right. The first the first book I just wrote to you is all about the introspection of me being a, a young child. And I think about that a lot. Um, I don't know if I've come to a point where I, I have an idea of what I would have been. It's so hard to say because I have so many family members that flourished. Mm hmm in Philadelphia, but then also I have other family members that are still trying to overcome whether it's the economic withholds they or economic restraints they have or just personal, you know, struggles they have growing up in a city like Philadelphia. Yeah. So, but I do think about it. I think the cool thing though is, you know, I, knowing the person I am today, I think I'd like to think I would have made the best of it regardless. So, um, yeah. yeah. Interesting question for sure. So your your parents brought you guys down to Florida and nineteen ninety eight to be specific. Nineteen ninety eight. So what happened? Like like his plan, you know, looking from the outside, you would say his plan did not work, at least for him, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. What what really happened to your family there? How did it all fall apart? That's a good question. Um, so. I think at that time, just in, in 98, honestly, I, I think my mom and dad, you know, when kids are young, life throws its own certain curveballs at you. Um, I think once we moved to Florida, where things probably went, to quote you, went sideways, Honestly, it was probably, in my opinion, like the lack of just community and support around my family. Yeah. Um, when you, and I experienced this in Atlanta, it can make you stronger. You know, I think Kelsey and I, when we moved to Hawaii, when we moved to Atlanta, you know, we have very little family around. So her and I really bonded really well together. Um, I'm not sure how, how we would have done that if we would have already had children and up and moved to a completely different state far away with small children. Mm-hmm. So I think the lack of community support and just encouragement around my parents is probably where things, you know, again, to quote you, went sideways, um, mm-hmm. if I had to reflect on that. Yeah. It, it didn't happen all at once either, right? It was kind of a gradual. Yeah, it was a gradual build, right? So. If you read in the book, it really was a seven-year journey where, you know, like most families have their struggles, their problems. Um, unfortunately, my parents' struggles and problems were displayed because we the, the state of Florida ended up getting involved. 
Um, so it was a seven year just battle of um, whether it was uh, domestic violence, whether it was drug use, whether it was um, even small things, right? Parents just getting in, getting into it with each other and neighbors getting involved and not sure the dynamic of the family. So they call authorities. And then once authorities get mixed in, um, typically things aren't handled the best. Uh, so that seven year span caused the judge to say, hey, I think this is enough. You've reached your limit as parents. It seems like the, the young children we were teenagers at that time seem like they've reached their limit. It's probably best for us to allow you my parents to get the help you need and the children be taken care of or provided for the best we think they need to. Um, so you guys yeah. were teenagers. How old were you, you and your sister? I was right at 15 and get returned 16 and my sister was 14 and returned 15. So did you have any idea that that's what was going to happen or was it a shock? That's a great question. I've, I don't think it was ever a shock. Uh, I think the experience was a shock. Um, I don't think what happened was a shock per se, because again, you know, through the seven years, you have caseworkers every so often coming and meeting with you, coming to your house, seeing how things are going. Um, it's very odd and very strange to me. Like at that time, it was just because what I was experiencing was normal, right? So me being taken away was almost worse than, at the time, worse than me remaining with my parents because of what it did to me mentally. So you thought, did you think everybody has caseworkers come to their house all the time or you just didn't think about that? I, I don't think I thought about it as much. Um, it's probably just the busyness from life. And again, you only know what you know, right? It's not like when you go to school, you're talking about it, you communicate with everybody. Um, to me, it was just like, hey, this is all I really know is about my family dynamic. Um, and so I didn't think about it much other than that. Part of that is probably because I'm a male, and I feel like males have the great ability to compartmentalize, right? right. My sister may have a completely different thought around it. Yeah, so I'm just trying to get this straight in my head because I, I, I read the book. Um, you talk about the friends that you had made when you came to Florida, Daniel yeah. and some of the other boys. Um, yeah. Was that before? That was before you were taken away, right? Yeah, so, so good, yeah, good question. So the book, the cool thing about the book, right, it's don't think about the book chronologically. Think about it as short stories. Right. And so, and this is a very interesting thing, right, and why I think I turned out the way I turned out. And a lot of the reason for my story is, even though my parents didn't have community, I had community. Right. So I met Daniel and David in the th in the third grade. So I met Daniel in third, and then I met Chris, and then I met David shortly after that. And so I had a core group from third grade, which was right around 2000 or 1999, 2000, somewhere around there. Um, I had that core group of friends up until I was taken away in 2007. Right. So I had eight years of a friend group where we all play sports together. We spent time together. So that's probably why, you know, I didn't think much about what was 
if my life was normal or not. I think the friendship, the camaraderie they provided me, the love they provided me so much, that was so great. I never thought about it. Like I was so focused on what I had versus what I didn't have or what wasn't normal. That yeah. makes sense. And it could have been a defense mechanism. Yeah. If you had not had this friend group when, when they came knocking on the door or they came yeah. to your school and took you, it, it would have just been, there's Brian. You know, like no, nobody would have missed you is what I'm saying. Nobody would have fought for you like these guys did. Yeah, I um, possibly, you know, uh, I know for sure they, them having them, there was a community. I later learned there were a couple other people, some youth pastors and former pastors that ended up finding out what happened and also came kind of to my family's side and support and rescue um, to be there for me. I learned that later, but had that community not be there, absolutely, right? That's the story of most foster children. Right. Um, that's why like, I'm, I want to start this movement about the importance, the impact of community is when you're taken away, your parents do their parental rights, right? That's my story. But how many foster kids are born without parents? Not because of necessarily drugs or domestic violence, but what if they die in a car wreck? Right. Right? Or, you know, what if they were born and their parents have, uh, end up having an a injury that permanently disables them for life where they can't f- care for them any longer? Yeah. And so there's so many people out there, and if we don't have that community and we don't have that, you know, somewhat of a stability somewhere, uh, I think it could be a great recipe for disaster. Yeah. Yeah. It's one thing when you, when kids know you're taking care of me because you're paid to take care of me. And when they know that you're taking care of me because you love me. Yeah, I uh, it's a it's a different type of love. And, and I even tell you just as uh, just to just to take what you just mentioned. Right. The person I don't know if I want to use her name per se for the sake of her identity, but the person who whose office I was in, she shared an office with my caseworker, uh, which is a whole nother problem in itself with uh, social work, public services, like the fact that two caseworkers had to share an office. It just so happens that the person sharing the office with my caseworker knew my foster family. And so we talk about community again, I probably, and. You know, I don't say this proudly, but it's just reality. I probably was prioritized that day, my sister and I, because we happened to be in the same room with a caseworker that knew of my community. Right. Right. So she knew Daniel. Right. So I think that day, you know, I don't say we got special attention, but I'm sure it has something to do with how we were navigated from that point on. Right. Yeah, I can't I can't say exactly, but maybe it influenced what foster home we went to, what group home I went to, because my sister and I went to this we went to two separate places. Right. Yeah, it's so one it's, it's it's one thing when like if I say you know there's all these orphans out there in the world that's such a that's such a far off thing for a lot of people. But if I stick an orphan on your doorstep and you see its face, you're gonna respond differently. Yeah, it's, it's hard to ignore it for sure. Yeah, so she had that connection. And so it's harder to say no to somebody that you have the connection with than you don't. Tell us about that day when they came and took you, because that was a pretty traumatic day. Yeah, so 
the day we were taken away, um, I still see it very vividly. I can still like picture the high school hallway that day, the amount of people that were in it. I can remember the weather that day. I still remember where I parked my car on campus that day. And so just for context, leading up to that day, social workers had come to our house because my mom and dad had gotten to an argument into a fight um, and the cops were called. So the social workers had been coming to our house for about a week, week and a half, um, knocking on our door. We didn't answer though. We were taught not to answer the door when they came at this point. So your parents were no longer there? My dad was no longer there. My mom was still there. Okay. So my, my dad had actually been arrested. Okay. Now looking back, they were, they were preparing to arrest my mom as well. And so that was the reason for them coming to knock on our door and find out where my sister and I were. And so after being unsuccessful of removing us from the home, uh, which is the first step, the second step is removing from the school. And I'll never forget being in class and getting a call over the, over the speaker to our teacher asking me to come to the front office. And I rarely got called to the front office. Um, I rarely got called to the front office to check out early. Well, I mean, rarely I can count on one hand the amount of times in my entire school year where that happened or my, you know, from kindergarten to 12th grade. And so I knew something was wrong, um, per se. And I had a feeling that it was possibly the social workers coming to remove my sister and I. And uh, probably I did with any probably big brother, older sibling would do. It was like, hey, I got to find my other sibling and get us out of here. Um, and I remember asking to, <laughs> it's just crazy how my mind worked even back then. I remember asking the teacher, hey, can you ask them if I need to bring my stuff or if I can leave my my backpack and, and my uh, football gear? And they said, no, he needs to bring all of his stuff with him. And that's when I knew like, okay, it's probably not my parents, right? It's not my grandparents, not any family because that's just, that's just never happened. They've never checked us out. And so I, instead of going straight to the office, I ran to the lunchroom to try and find my sister because I knew she was at lunch at that period. I remember looking around the lunchroom, trying to find her, couldn't see her, asked a couple of her friends where she was, and they mentioned she was already at the front office. They called her up to the office. Um, and so it was at that moment where I realized, like, okay, I don't know if there's much more I can do. You know, I had thoughts about getting in the car and leaving and then trying to find her later. Um, but something just told me, like, hey, this is kind of over. It is what it is. And so I went up to the office that day, and from there, we found out that we were going to be removed from our parents, and my sister would have to go to a foster home, and then I would have to go to a group home. So so did you not go to a foster home just because there weren't enough foster homes yeah, for teenage I, I, boys? <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, I, you know, I don't want to generalize anyone, but in the panhandle of Florida, specifically Pensacola, lower Alabama, as I like to call it, I don't know how many foster homes wanted to, nor were prepared. Not that you have to be prepared or prepped, but I don't know how many people are comfortable with having a 15, 16 year old young black male show up on their door and, hey, you've got to give him a place to live until things are figured out, right? It's indefinite at that point. 
Um, and so the easiest thing was to stick me in a group home. Um, it wasn't even a group home. It was actually a shelter for runaways, foster children, etc. to to stay. So it wasn't even a group home. So I was mixed amongst people who, kids who were, uh, I don't want to say trouble kids, but kids who were experiencing some type of trouble at that time of their life. Yeah. Yeah, you, it, 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 almost like a prison, right? Like you said, they'd it's check up. on you every 15 minutes or something every night. Yeah, it was a really interesting environment. Um, it just felt weird to always have people watching you, right? You talk about like being normal and want to feel normal. Um, I understand safety protocol, things of like that, but man, to have somebody change even the utensils of what you, you, you ate with, right? We weren't allowed to use forks because the forks were dangerous, technically, quote unquote. According to them. So everything I had to eat, I had to eat with a spoon because no one can hurt each other with a spoon, right? And then at night, to make sure you didn't run away uh, or make sure you weren't going to harm yourself, you had to have a counselor there check, open your door, you know, every so often throughout the night. And it was constant. You had rules about how long you could use the bathroom, right? And so when you think about a kid who was removed from his parents, not because of anything they did, or just in kids who don't have parents, right? We're talking about people who are in foster care, people who just technically don't have parents right now. This is what throughout the world they may be experiencing or even worse. Um, it was always so interesting to me. I remember we tried to watch SpongeBob and it was like, no, you're not allowed to watch SpongeBob. There were only certain cartoons or TV shows we could watch. Uh, it was a really, really interesting experience. Uh, by grace of God, I wasn't there too long. Um, but man, it was, it was something I, I still to this day, it, uh, kind of makes my hair stand up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when, that's about the time I met you, I think, cause you, cause some of our friends, um, became your foster parents yep. and they were not very old. They were like early twenties Yeah. taking on a kid that wasn't that much younger than them. Right. Yep. Yep. I got a lot of respect for them. <laughs> I have. It's still weird to even think about because, you know, I think about myself at their age. Like, could I have done that? And I know the realistic answer to that. Um, there's no way I could have done that. And by the way, they, they took on me and my sister and they had a, they had a young younger child of their own. Yeah. Um, and so, and again, just to, just to show the importance and the value, the impact of community, I was able to go with them because of the relationship that they potentially had with the caseworker that was sharing an office with my caseworker. So the trust and the ability to be able to do what's best for the children happened. A judge was willing to make certain things happen because of that community, because of that relationship. Yeah. There was a, there was a lot of people I could have potentially went to. I could have went to some family members. Would have been fine, right? Because they were family. I know them. But it may not have been the best overall outcome for me long term. Right. Right. I could have went with, you know, this pastor or this family friend and all that would have been fine. But because of the community I had already built or I had around me, the Daniel, the Davids, that resulted into who I ultimately went to 
once I got out of that shelter for my foster family. Yeah. So yeah, I think we've been right about that. I think I was right about 15 or 16. I remember there. you uh, in there downstairs playing Guitar Hero with Daniel. I think that's when I met you. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> gosh, Guitar, Guitar Hero, that is nostalgic for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and and I and I know it was a, it was a struggle for them because I mean teenagers are hard even if yeah. you know them your whole life you know and then you're getting all the tr- trauma and the baggage you know not that not that that would have kept them from taking you but it's a lot to deal with and I remember I actually have this memory I remember her telling me one time because you're a kid you don't think about stuff you know you don't think about paying bills you don't think about stuff like that and I remember one time she was like they keep messing with the thermostat (laughs) um yeah as a as as an adult parent who's got small kids and I just thought about that I was like oh no I need to thank god for like nest and stuff so it's crazy to think like back then in 2007 you know I don't think Ness was around, so you couldn't even lock the thermostat <laughs> keep her from doing anything. So, uh, if they ever get to listen to this, I'm sorry. Please, <laughs> uh, you know, um, played a lot of sports. Obviously, come home hot and sweaty, and then I'm always I'm still like this at night. I've got to be cold when I go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, they they did a lot for you. I remember her driving all the way, you know, another town to watch you play football and. Not even just watch me play football. Most people don't even know. Like, she drove us to school every day. So about 26 miles to drop us off and 26 miles to pick us up. She probably did that for, man, I want to say six months. Yeah. At least. You know, so think about that. Like, 60 mile, a 60-mile day trip with a one-year-old every day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. She's going to have a big crown in heaven. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, you talk about the butterfly effect. You know, um, I first heard about that with Andy Andrews. Is that is that how you learned about the butterfly effect? Have you read that book? Yeah, he he's one of, or Andy Andrews is one of the reasons the movie was the first time as a kid that I experienced it. Yeah. And still to this day, it's one of it's one of my favorite movies because the. Uh, it's just such an interesting phenomenon to think about at times because things are, you know, even if you just think like the earth is spinning right now, even though it doesn't feel like it, even though we don't, it doesn't seem like it. And so I almost want to encourage people like, you know, Gina had no idea what that 60 mile hike every day in a little Jeep Liberty with two obnoxious teenagers and <laughs> her own one-year-old. She had no idea what the fruits, you know, were going to come from her doing that today. So I try to put people in that mindset. I love that phenomenon. Right. It, for, for people that don't know, um, I know Hudson's got a questioning look over here. You know what the butterfly effect is? What, what is it, Hudson? Tell us. Go ahead. Oh, you said you said yes. You don't know. It's like it's the concept that you know this butterfly flaps his wings and it affects something way over on the other side of the world, right? And and you know, 
and hearing your story, I see that a lot. Like, like people would have interactions with you and maybe in their minds, oh, this is not something significant or great. It's just a little interaction. But, and maybe by themselves, they didn't seem that great. But if I add my little interaction with you here, combined with this person interaction with you over here, um, that creates the whole picture of how you see yourself, right? Like you talk about, you know, all the all the things that people did to help you. The this book, you know, that we keep referring to. Let's talk about this a little bit. Like, what led you, what led you to write the book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so many things, obviously, right? We talk about the butterfly effect. All the things that have happened in my life that like ultimately led me to write this book. The main pivotal point that started it though was. Um, having children um, or just being responsible for anything pretty quickly you you realize uh, you realize really quickly that you may have some things you need to work on from a healing perspective and so at the time I had two children both girls again I don't want to generalize women or girls but Girls have a great tendency to allow dads, from this from my experience, to tap into probably what society hasn't allowed us to tap into as men. Or not allow us, but prevent us from, and that's just like emotions. And so I was almost forced to just be so introspective at times uh, because of like raising my children that I realized I had a lot of things I needed to heal from. Mm-hmm. That a lot of things I needed to forgive, and for me, right? If I already struggled with emotions, you know, I learned really quickly that hey, I, I can communicate pretty well when I write things down, or if I do it through an audio note where I can talk to it. And so that started the process of me actually doing the book. The idea came, uh, and again, we talk about butterfly, you know, the butterfly effect. The idea came from. Uh, my foster parents, uh, I should say my paternal foster dad's mother, she gave me an idea when I was 16 that I should write one day about my story because so many people needed to hear it. And at the time, again, a six-year-old kid, yeah, that sounds cool, maybe, <laughs> yeah. And as time went on, every time her and I would talk, we'd be together, it'd somehow come up. And so um, just spending a year of just healing going to therapy i did that for me and in return there was an opportunity for me to join a group of writers um a, a new york times bestseller author jefferson bethany is a guy i've been following for a long time he, he decided to hold a writer's retreat and i was just like man this might be even a better way to force me to get all this out and heal, right? And so I went on that, and from that, the idea of, hey, this is a great way to heal, but also there's more here and demonstrating that there is a power in community. Yeah. Right? And so uh, still didn't plan on releasing it. Had a couple people look at a couple different things I've written down, and Almost every person had the same response. It's like, you need to write this and you need to publish it. And uh, 
You know, I just took the plunge. I just jumped. I started thinking about the butterfly effect, okay? This was never about money. It was never about getting famous. It was all about that concept of the butterfly effect. If 10 people can get the book, who do those 10 people eventually may have an impact on because they read that book, right? Yeah. It could turn into a million pretty quickly. And I hope my story, and this is just a fraction of my story, right? It's just my childhood. I haven't even read about me 18 and on, right? And so... What could, you know, that 10 people have an effect on if we think about the butterfly effect? Yeah, I think it's a great book, especially for people who mentor kids who are going through hard times. Just um, just to get a perspective of how they're really thinking. You know, a lot of people see kids like that. Oh, they're bad kids. But really, they're not. You know, they're they're struggling. I even think about it, you know, I this conversation, I don't have any research yet to back it up, but there's so many studies coming out now about the importance of nutrition and how it affects um, children and even adults, right? Like, I know when I don't eat, I'm pretty angry. I'm pretty, you know, I, I get hangry, as we call it, right? Right. You know, how many kids are out there that they're literally acting the way they act in class, school, wherever, where they're, they're deemed defiant, disrespectful, when really they're just hungry. And maybe that's because they're growing faster than these kids. Or maybe because their they're, at-home they're at situation isn't the best. Right? I'm not even talking about my experience. I'm just saying in general. Right. How many of those things, how many of those kids are now being, quote-unquote, deemed in life and in their career and in their, their academics solely because... The kid doesn't have the best nutritional balance. So, you know, there's so many things that go on and on about that, but like it's it's just it's really, really important that like we take a holistic view when we're looking at, you know, the next generation and the younger people behind us. Yeah, we're playing a long game. What would you say to teens going through hard stuff right now? So that's such a deep question. And I'm going to try not to get emotional when I, when I say it, but uh, and this is, this is coming from a perspective of someone obviously who's 31 reflecting back. Um, what I would say to teens currently right now who are struggling is that there is beauty in the struggle. Um, there is hope in the struggle. There is growth in the struggle. And I truly believe that everything in life is ultimately a means to an end. And so with everything that's happening to you right now, you've got to ask yourself, how do I use this to either better one day, myself or those around me? Or how do I take what's happening to me? And this is what I did, and it may be a defense mechanism. But a lot of times, I would try to get to a place, and even looking back, I wouldn't make it personal. You know, Richie asked me a question like that. I think it was normal that social workers were coming into my house every, you know, at once a month or once every other month. Yeah, I think I just didn't take it personal. Right? It was something that was happening, 
I didn't need to make it like I didn't need to say this was happening because of me. It's a very hard thing to do. It's easier for me to say it now, but but I would just try not to make things personal. So the biggest thing that I love to give to teens right now, if you are struggling, if you have a you know difficult family dynamic, dynamic, a difficult friend dynamic at school, um, there is some beauty, some silver lining in that struggle. The biggest thing you've got to do is figure out what it is or what it could be. Yeah. And sometimes you won't see that for years. Yeah. Yeah. Introspection is a beautiful thing. And I, it's something I think isn't talked about enough. Um, I think it's important to get to a place and be silent and just spend time in your thoughts. You know, I think I was, we were always taught for so long, like, you know, uh, don't think, you know, just do, just don't think, just do. That's so dangerous. There is a place and time for that, but, you know, reflection is a beautiful thing. And so sometimes that reflection is 10 years, sometimes it's two days. What would you say to like parents of maybe like, you know, like maybe their kids, okay, but their kid has a friend who maybe would be like a younger Brian. And, you know, everybody's like, don't let your kid hang around with that kid. Um, He's he's not he's got a bad background. Right. Um, You know, you tell the story about the teacher, the time when you had a test and you were all stressed out and uh, uh, and you came in and flipped the desk over. You know, I was reading that story and I'm thinking, what would I have done if I was that teacher? And the truth of the matter is, I probably would have been like. Brian, go to the office. <laughs> yeah. Right, but she had, she, um, she didn't do that. No, she provided grace. And, uh, you know, to answer your first question about, you know, parents who may have have a friend, you know, whether it's a kid in foster care or, or a kid that's having trouble or, or in a difficult place, you know, whether it's mentally or physically. You know, I can't give out too much information on this, but I'm actually working on a children's book series with a friend who actually helped me write this book, Rebecca Mitchell. We're doing a uh, co-authoring this time, um, a children's book series to talk about that very thing, right? How can we encourage young teenagers, children especially, to have the conversation with their parents, responsible guardians of how they can be an ally for them, right? And so we're creating a children's book series to teach how do you do this. Um, So what I would say to them first and foremost is you have to lead by example. Uh, I'm a big proponent of that. Uh, Parents have to already be doing that very thing. What are parents doing? for their friends, for their colleagues, right? For the people around them, the people in their neighborhood. How do they lead by example in order to, I mean, that's the first step in my eyes. Um, I heard the saying not too long ago that uh, information for the sake of information is useless if there's not some practicality to it. Right? I can give you as much information as possible. If I never teach you how to utilize it, it's pointless. 
um, or it could be dangerous, <laughs> you know, some might argue. And so uh, I think parents have to start there, right? And it, it could be as simple as putting their children in an environment. And I don't know why I'm about to give this analogy, and I'm so sorry for all the people who don't care about English history, but I've always been not obsessed, but intrigued by the monarchy and in uh, Europe with uh, Queen Elizabeth and all that history. <laughs> but um, Princess Diana, it's, it's shown she was a philanthropist and she loved to put her children in environments that they weren't used to so that they could see, so that they got empathy and sympathy. And I think that is so valuable and so important and it goes to show right now in her children, right? Um, I don't know if their family appreciates it now, but it for sure is making an impact on the world, not just their country. And so I think about that type of aspect. How can you, you know, do your children always play sports with everybody that looks like you? Your children always attend schools with people that believe exactly how you believe, right? Um, I think that is the first step or the encouragement I would give to you to parents that may have young children or teens that have friends dealing with some of the things I dealt with or even other things. That was a really long answer. I'm sorry. But <laughs> so yeah. What do you think, what you've gone through, what do you think, that, how has that changed you the most as a person? Oh, what's no. The, like, what's my number one thing I feel like? Oh, I, I can't give you one. <laughs> uh, what's, so... What's the number one thing? He he asked me the question again. Like how the the all that you went through growing up. What would you say the number one lesson I learned from all of that was? Mm, there's so many things that I could say here because that's just the reality. There there are so many. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if this is the number. One thing I've learned, because again, a lot of this is about, it's, it's an ongoing experience for me, right? That's the beauty about perspective and um, uh, being introspective or introspection in itself, is that it's an ongoing process. But right now, where I am today at 31 years old, and dad of two, wife, you know, where I'm at my career, the number one thing I would say that everything I've been through has taught me is literally the movement I'm trying to create. And it is that community is no longer an option. Yeah, and in my belief, it's never been an option. It's life or death for a, for a majority of people. Yeah. And this goes beyond just foster care, right? We're talking about like, suicide prevention, we're talking about addiction, right? Like community is not an option, it's life or death for most of the world. And until we start thinking with that type of mindset, um, I think we continue to see the things that we're seeing reoccurring, reoccurring. Yeah, that's good. I like it. Sorry, I, I was, I, uh, and I, I truly believe that. I truly believe that like community saved my life. It really did. So what, what's in the future for you, Brian? Oh, a lot of things. Um, the biggest thing right now is I, uh, I want to get this book into as many hands as possible. I don't, 
for me, I don't I don't care about this is not a revenue stream for me. This is not a thing for me to try and live off of. This is me providing hope to the world. And for me, right now what I'm trying to figure out is how can I get enough people or group of people to sponsor, donate to this book to where we can cover just the cost um, of the book, right? And then I can give it to as many teachers, social workers, pastors, uh, state employee, anybody that's dealing with young foster parents, right? Group homes. How can I get this in so, in, in so many people's hands to where we can begin this conversation and the importance of the butterfly effect in community? Um, so that's what's next for me. Um, hopefully children's books are right around the corner. I think that's the next step as well. Um, my wife and I are also expecting a baby boy. Oh, I didn't know that. Baby. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, that's in the future. And then the last thing, there will be a second, not second part, but there'll be another book that's similar. Um, to this one where it kind of highlights my adult life. Um, haven't currently fully mapped it out, but the the premise of it uh, is children raising children. And mm. I'm going to walk through basically all the stories the same way I did in my childhood through my adulthood this far. Um, and it's basically going to demonstrate that we've got to meet people where they are. We talk about the community aspect of it, right? It's so hard to let people in or be around people when they aren't exactly where we are. And I'm going to use my experience with my foster family and the experience with my biological family, as well as my work experience in demonstrating like, hey, the world may, people may look at this as a really bad situation, but I'm going to give you a perspective where it really was the same. Um, and that's the second book I'm currently mapping out. I've got the framework of that I'm trying to work on. And I'm pretty excited about that one because that one's really, really close to home because it's more recent. Um, and I haven't had as much time to be as introspective about it. So it'll be it'll be unique in its own way. So where can people find you? Like Instagram or Facebook? Hudson, you know it. I love Instagram. Um it's a great platform to utilize to, to push content. Um, on Instagram, Twitter, I am uh, my I'm Brian Smith Jr. So at Brian Smith Jr. And then my website really is the best way to find out about all the things I'll be doing with TU and the upcoming books, podcast release like this one I'll have on the website, and that's BrianSmithJr.com. Awesome. So when we air this, it's probably going to be right after you release. So People can get that book where? Yep, go to BrianSmithJr.com. You'll see a tab there to order two different versions. You can order a signed copy by me. There'll be limited versions of that. And then also, it'll be on Amazon. So on Amazon, you can find it to you by Brian Smith Jr. Thank you so much for coming on, Brian. We're so proud of you. Uh, you've taken something that was painful and ugly and made it into something beautiful that will change the world. Um, you know, you say in your book, we could change the world for ourselves, but that isn't gonna last long. The biggest impact we can have is setting up the next generation to succeed. And I think that you um, are doing that. So much love to you and your family. 
Thank you so much. If you enjoy our podcast, please share it with a friend. Have a great week.